Science is skeptical. This is something that you've probably heard a lot, and I want to try to relate this to you in a sort of new and fresh way that is going to make some sort of sense as to why it is necessary to talk about this whole idea of science and the scientific method yet again. I feel like the scientific method is something that's introduced really early on and is closely associated with, you know, again, Socrates, and uh, seems somewhat simplistic that when we look at the whole notion of hypothesis and experiment and conclusion and all of that, it feels very uh, familiar and normal and self-confirming to a lot of us who just go through the motions of education and school rather than uh, really trying to delve into what this means. So what I really want to do is welcome you to the academic conversation. The academic conversation is something that you take part in when you are in school or that you should be taking part in in your everyday life. And it is entirely separate from many of the other conversations that you have. The academic conversation was arguably started by Aristotle at the end of his fantastic book, Nicomachean Ethics, and it's also arguably started in the East by Confucius, uh, who's known as the um, father of education. The academic conversation is uh, not about what we believe. It's about what we can know. And what we can know is necessarily separated from what we believe because what we can know does not depend on belief whatsoever and this is important because our brains are wired for belief belief makes a lot of sense it makes things easier it uh, provides a lot of shortcuts that really once again are uh, made through evolution for survival rather than they are for the accumulation and advancement of knowledge, which can lead to you know, progress in a civilization or in a science or in a discipline. The reason that we worry about what we can know is because our brain is tricky. Our brain has all sorts of like different biases and holes. It falls for illusions. I mean, one really simple example of uh, how tricky our brain can be is, is how much you want sugar, right? That your, your brain has evolved that when you encounter sugar, you have been trained to want to hoard it into your body and have a lot of it. And this is hacked by people all the time. Uh, nothing is a better picture of how easily our brains are hacked than looking at marketing and particularly looking at children's cereal marketing. Uh, you can wake up in the morning and have a big old bowl of uh, sugary fun time crisps and uh, be perfectly happy and content. And there's, you know, a cartoon bear spreading some kind of, you know, frosting all over your cereal on the box. And that bear is looking down at you to make eye contact if you're a kid. And it's also exciting and welcoming and happy. And yet we know that this doesn't um, actually equal something that's good for us despite the fact that our brain wants to imbibe it so hard. And what the marketers know is that you can get around that. You can get around that by, by putting on some really generally happy-sounding words like made from whole grains or gluten-free or organic. And 
you know, organic sugar or um, GMO corn syrup. There may be some differences in, in how good it is for you, but it doesn't make one of them a good idea first thing in the morning to have a big bowl of sugar fun time crisps. And yet, this is something that our brain is super amenable to. So our brain has these holes in its thinking, these holes in its logic. And beliefs are not necessarily um, representations of those holes in the logic. But beliefs do not depend on logic. Beliefs do not depend on uh, our exact experience. Okay, so let's step back. What scientific method really stresses is that if you are to know something, if something is to be part of the academic conversation, it must be refutable. You must be able to try and disprove it. There must be a way to show that uh, this is a testable piece of knowledge. So for example, one way that, that belief can become very frustrating for those of us who don't share the same beliefs as somebody else is when they use the justification um, that, you know, God works in mysterious ways. That we prayed and prayed for this to happen and it didn't happen, but lo and behold, God works in mysterious ways and that was actually the better thing for us. The fact that our beliefs allow for disconfirming evidence to further confirm what we initially believed shows a hole in thinking. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't work in mysterious ways, and I'm not saying that your belief system that says he does is incorrect. I'm saying that it can't be known. I'm saying that if every single thing that you want to do experiment-wise to disprove that is invalidated, then you have a belief system at work. Now, this is not just limited to people who are religious and people who believe in God. I'm not saying that it is. For example, Sigmund Freud had all sorts of holes in his theories where he had theories set up that were self-confirming. He said, for example, that every single man had a fear of castration and that those, of, those men who didn't fear castration were just in denial. So the, the harder they denied it, the more it just proved his point. That cannot be part of our academic conversation. You can't take a theory like that and make that be a psychological truth. That's a philosophical idea for sure, but it's not a psychological truth because it cannot be disproved. The more you try to disprove it, the more it will confirm in Freud's mind that, haha, you're scared of being castrated. So that goes back to being a problem with common sense and really brings into play why it is so necessary to apply a system of thought, a system of knowing, a system of experimentation to what we include in the body of knowledge that we share, what we include in the literature, what we include in the academic conversation. Your system one thinking, that part of your thinking that stands up front and represents for the most part what you're doing, what you're thinking, and what you know at this moment has all sorts of biases. One of them is a con confirmation bias, that it's always looking to confirm something that it suspects. It is has belief built into it. Uh, for example, if I'm grading papers and I have a stack of your essays in front of me, 
and the very first one is excellent. It's an A+, plus. you just did nothing wrong. Then the next essay that I grade by your, you, even if it's showing deficiencies, I am likely to see in a more positive light. Because for me to refute that, for me to say, oh, this paper is actually like a C-, challenges my previous notion about you. And your System 1 brain does not want to challenge itself. Your System 1 brain takes in something, part, makes it part of the belief of who it is, of who you are. So it will confirm what I earlier suspected. So it's much easier uh, to look at a, a stack of you know, essays of yours as the first one being much more important than the last one because the last one has to really confirm what I thought in the first place. Now, I try and fight against that. I have systems in place for how I grade that I try to look against that, but if you're not aware of it, it's really hard to go up against. This is the case for juries, that the first side of the story that they hear is more likely to be believed than the second side, that they will look for evidence that confirms what they initially believe from the first side of the story. This is the case with parents when kids are fighting and one person says one thing and one says the other, that we tend to grasp onto the first story that we hear and then try and build a case to support it because that supports our notions of who we are. So the academic conversation, the system of, of scientific skepticism where we try and approach things in a way that we try and disprove what we think we know is there to help us hack that side of the brain, to help us look around the part of us that initially comes in with a belief and with basically an agenda, an agenda to prove that belief because that has become part of who it is. Now, this works together with all sorts of things like um, implicit, uh, implicit memory. That our implicit memory is a, a part of our world that we hardwire that creates what we feel are knowns. So, for example, our implicit memory is that if we see the way uh, something works out in physics, the way that... Um, you uh, break a pool table setup that we know that when one ball hits another, hits another, that it reacts in certain ways. Now, this is correct. There are physics and math involved with playing pool, but you don't know this. This is something that you've witnessed and created as a part of your implicit memory. And it just so happens that for the most part, it's right most of the time. We know that when you let go of something, it falls to the ground. That's part of our implicit memory. But what can happen with your implicit memory is you can start making assumptions that don't really work out. Uh, for example, if you have a really traumatic experience with someone, then you might see somebody who meets that same sort of makeup, that same sort of demographic as uh, somehow threatening. Um, you might have a, a, a phobia of um, getting your hair cut if the first time you sat down at a barber shop, they cut your ear. 
and it might be hard for you to imagine that barbers don't just cut ears. And as part of a much earlier conversation that we've had, uh, that your implicit memory can create all sorts of illusions of uh, racism and sexism and all sorts of other things that basically your brain comes to believe as a hardwired part of your reality and that you seek evidence to confirm all the time. One problem with pseudoscience is that pseudoscience is a type of thinking that looks very much like science, but that is really uh, trying to confirm what it is that it's found. There's a great example of pseudoscience that you can find in a documentary that at least used to be on Netflix called uh, Behind the Curve, and it's about flat earthers. And flat earthers have created a sub-reality that is so completely engrossing and fascinating about the world being flat. Now, of course, your senses, your immediate senses, do tell you that the world is flat. It seems obvious. You're standing on a flat surface. If you draw a ground, you're not curving it on your piece of paper. It tends to be flat because our immediate reality says that the world is flat. Uh, you can become conscious of the curve by standing at a high point and looking at the horizon and watching something disappear over the horizon. Yet, flat earthers have some sort of way of explaining that away. Man, they can explain anything. They're, they explain things about... Uh, eclipses and the way the heavens move and uh, physics in a totally different way. And they've designed fantastic experiments to try and show that the world is flat. Uh, fantastic experiments with long distance lasers and watching the way that the laser would have to rise in order for it to uh, be pointing across a curve instead of a flat, flat surface. And when their experiment shows that they are actually standing on a curved surface, they come up with logic that refutes it. They come up with a way of saying, oh, this is actually because of this, and I don't know why we didn't see that when we designed this experiment. And sometimes it has to do with NASA firing like weird gamma rays at them to, to confuse them. And all of it makes a cohesive world view that is absolutely fascinating and uh, worthy of, of beautiful um, psychological study, but is completely wrong when it comes to what can be known. Even when they disprove something, all it does is further confirm this conspiracy against them. This is the problem with belief. This is the problem with not being able to argue against something that you have hardwired into your, your mindset that you, if you aren't letting in the information that you're learning or studying or practicing, then you will be married to the system of belief because it is so comfortable. And comfort is one of the most prevailing uh, aspects of truth in our heads. What is comfortable we see as true. That's why when a lie is repeated over and over and over again, we are more likely to see it as true because the repetition creates a comfort. The repetition by itself starts making it seem true. What is uncomfortable is a new truth. What is uncomfortable is something that goes against a belief that you already have. 
And that is part of why, you know, I, I had a great writing teacher in the past who always said, true growth doesn't happen within your comfort zone. And that had one of those little sayings that has this sort of like ring of knowledge and wisdom to it. And uh, damned if it wasn't right, because to truly grow means to abandon what you previously thought, what your previous beliefs were. And by its very definition of the way our brain works, that forces a discomfort, that forces us to confront something that is uncomfortable. Um, so it's so easy to take this conversation to politicians, that politicians tend to repeat lies over and over in order for us to believe what they're saying. Um, commercials tend to do this. They say something over and over and over again until we believe what it is. And uh, that being made comfortable, having our um, beliefs, even if they are really narrow and xenophobic beliefs, confirmed over and over again, becomes a very comfortable space for us. And it's much more comfortable, of course, to blame someone else for our problems, blame some other group for our problems, blame some other country or some other system for our problems than ourselves and our beliefs. And it's really hard for us to blame the history that we've read and studied. This is why people get so upset and say all sorts of things about, oh, revisionist history, because when you start learning about the less comfortable aspects of our history, it doesn't feel good and it doesn't feel right because your brain, in essence, is counting this as somehow discounting part of yourself, part of how you see yourself. So something that we've heard over and over again is uh, since childhood, for whatever reason, is that George Washington had wooden teeth. Now, it stands to reason that if George Washington did have wooden teeth, that, that was probably a fairly common practice for people at his time. So why is it that we know that George Washington had wooden teeth rather than, you know, Ben Franklin or John Adams or whoever else of his contemporaries? And I can't even tell you if he had wooden teeth or not. I believe that's the case. But again, it's something that's come to me as truth and that I've heard so often that I, I can't argue against it. But something else that I do know that is true is that George Washington had a set of dentures that was made by the teeth of his slaves. Now, that's much less comfortable that George Washington went walking around with a set of teeth that was not his own, that was created from the different teeth of different slaves of his that were pulled out of their mouths in order to create a set of human dentures that he put into his mouth for formal occasions so it looked really nice and natural. They picked the best teeth from the best mouths and uh, made a, a set just for our the father of our nation. Now again, this might have been something that was common practice back then. We might be able to find that lots of aristocrats had teeth made out of human mouths. And that might start sort of dissipating that discomfort with learning something like this. And it certainly would have dissipated his own discomfort because this didn't come out of the blue for him, this idea of having um, a mouthful of slave teeth. But for us, it's uncomfortable. And to bring this up in a history class or in a conversation with somebody who's going off about how great the Founding Fathers were, 
it seems to refute all of that. And it does it in such an uncomfortable way that most people don't believe it. When you tell them something like this, you tell them some fact that is well-documented and well-known, and it rubs against their grain strongly enough, they just won't believe it. They will come up with all sorts of motives and all sorts of reasons why this is incorrect. And this is because they are playing off of that system one. They are not learning or growing. They are not trying to. They are confirming belief. You will find academics who do this. You'll find academics who do research projects and research papers, and all they're really doing is confirming what they previously knew. They don't get very far with this, of course, and especially in uh, the hard sciences. But uh, if you find people who are trying to confirm things that they felt like they knew from history or through the humanities, there's all sorts of like off-the-wall um, interpretations that people will try and you just have to look into them just a little bit to see the holes. And those holes are in their own brain. They're in their own way that their mind is working. So this is really what we need to look out for. This is why we have a system of critical thinking. This is why we have a system of scientific method and why we have a system of experimentation and questioning. This is why we have peer review. It's not because the information and knowledge isn't out there in a general way. Yes, you have terrific access to all sorts of general knowledge and general information. But to truly and truly integrate it into the academic conversation, into what we truly know, it has to be checked and rechecked and rechecked. Because you don't want to be someone who's just flying by the seat of their own belief. You don't want to be someone who's just going by their own experience their own implicit memory, their own implicit bias and confirmation bias. You want to be able to create a network of what is known and to draw conclusions from facts that when refuted, you can find holes in that uh, refutation, if that's a word. This isn't easy and this isn't, this isn't comfortable. It's going to make you uncomfortable. But you have to understand this. You have to understand it in order to sort of step forward with a skeptic's mind. Skepticism doesn't mean abandoning uh, your beliefs entirely. But it does mean questioning things that you feel are uh, facts. And this is why when somebody comes into a class of mine and they're doing a research paper, and part of their research paper might have religious texts of, uh, say, you know, the Bible or uh, the Quran or, or uh, the Bhagavad Gita, um, that you don't use that as factual evidence. That you cannot use your religion, you cannot use your belief system as factual evidence because it cannot be refuted. It can't be disproven. The academic world doesn't deny those things. You can have those things. And if those things are true, that's fine. That's totally fine. But if God works in mysterious ways, he seems to have been very consistent with things like physics. He seems to be very consistent with uh, things like evolution. So instead of looking for textual examples of why your belief system rejects the science, you need to be trying to look at this, these two things as completely separate conversations, completely separate 
areas of knowledge. If it cannot be refuted, it's not part of the conversation. There's not a lot of judgment there. You don't have to take this as a rejection of who you are or how you were brought up or anything like that. You just have to keep it separate. That's part of the game that we're playing here. To bring belief into that game is uh, like bringing a baseball bat to a football game. You just don't do it. It's not within the rule book. And you can't build off of that. We're building a system of knowledge. We're advancing knowledge. And this has to be knowledge that is done systematically and slowly and done with the participation of System 2 thinking. And to question everything that's brought forth by System 1. Belief can't do that. And that's okay for belief. But for knowledge, we simply must.